1 Corinthians chapter 10. This morning we're looking at verses 1 through 13. 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, looking at verses 1 through 13. Um, I gotta keep. I gotta be mindful to not turn away from the mic, right? Because I don't. I, I'm, I'm up here. Feel like I'm about to give you guys. A, I have a dream speech up here with this mic in front of me, but we're, we'll <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 10. We're looking at verses 1 through 13 on this morning. 1 through 13 on this morning. So um, we we've been talking about for the last couple of Sundays this ideal of food being offered to idols and what is the significance of food being offered to idols for a contemporary church or a modern church um, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that even relevant to us? And the last couple of weeks, what we've unpacked and what we've realized is that Paul is really not necessarily talking exclusively about food offered to idols. Paul is talking about the idea that we can be so caught up in what we know about idols that we refuse to love our neighbors who don't necessarily know the same things about idols. And so in other words, because we know that idols don't mean anything and because we know that food, all food is clean, we can have a neighbor that doesn't necessarily know that or is still being convicted by that and we don't love them well and so we'll get to chomping down on food offered to idols right in front of them knowing that it's a stumbling block for them. And Paul says if that's the way you exercise your knowledge, then you don't know like you think you know. Okay? So we talked about the idea that knowledge is not enough. Love has to shape knowledge and love has to shape our freedom as Christians and as followers of Christ and not only love but the gospel is what we talked about last week the gospel has to fuel that knowledge and the gospel has to fuel those freedoms and so we have to be willing to lay down freedoms for the sake of the gospel and that's what Paul did or, or worked, we worked through Paul's um, appeal to the church on last week in chapter 9, where he says, listen, I will lay it all down if it presents any obstruction to the gospel whatsoever. I won't eat meat. I won't, I won't, uh, there's, there's a lot of things I won't eat. I won't take pay. There's a lot of things that I will not do if it puts any obstruction in the gospel's way. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit more about this ideal of idolatry, but we're going to take somewhat of a turn. And I want you to take this turn with me. Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be unaware. Now, as usual, the word for in this text is an indicator that, that the words and or phrases that are about to follow that word for are intended to provide additional support to the words and the phrases that preceded that word for. So chapter 10 is not picking up with a new thought necessarily, but it is building directly on a previous thought that we were working through in chapter 9. So the question is, what is the previous thought that chapter 10 is about to pick up on and provide more support to? So I want to turn your attention real quick to chapter 9. Look there in verse 24 through 27, and it says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it 
under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, everyone can be in the race, but that doesn't ensure that everyone will yield the same satisfaction and accomplishment of winning the actual race. Only the ones running to win can truly look with hope to partake in the blessing of victory, winning the race. Paul is giving us somewhat of a harsh reality here to consider concerning being disqualified, losing the race, and thus missing out on the blessing of victory. You can be in the race and yet totally disengaged from the possibility of winning the race. You can be in the camp and yet so far away from partaking in the blessings of the camp. You can be in the church with a heart still far from God and far from the abundance of blessing that comes with remaining steadfast and near God. You see, we all can be in the church and yet our love for our idols can place us on the outside of the blessing that comes to the church. That's Paul's point here. And it's an extremely sobering point. You see, the kind of comfort that leads us to taking for granted our place in God's story is a dangerous comfort. To just be, quote unquote, present in the room, going through the motion. So, so he is saying in so many words here, I don't want to get so comfortable in terms of me exercising my rights and exercising my freedoms and exercising my knowledge that I end up on the outside of God's will, bringing more displeasure to God than pleasure to God. I don't want to get so caught up in rights and freedoms that I open doors to idolatry in my own heart. You see, there is a clear and present danger in constantly trying to exercise your freedom and your rights. And that danger is not just towards the people on the receiving end of that selfish exercise, but it is also a danger to those that are exercising it. When we exercise our freedoms above all things, then it is not just doing damage to those that we are exercising them against. It's doing damage to us as well. And that's what Paul is preparing us to discuss. But Paul does not just, um, he just doesn't turn our attention to himself and the discipline that he is exercising to win this race. But he does so by turning our attention towards ancient history. Beginning in chapter one, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, let's look at it again. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Paul is going to give us in this text lessons from history concerning idolatry to help us understand how to handle the idolatry of his day and how to, how to handle the idolatry of our day. The first important point to make about Paul here, or Paul's challenge to the Corinthians regarding their misuse of their freedom, is in 
the familial language that he uses. Paul uses family-like language, and it's really interesting. He says, our fathers. This is a very interesting use of phrase because Paul is not speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. He's speaking to a group of Gentiles. However, by Paul saying these are not just my fathers, but these are our fathers, what Paul is doing is making clear that God, that, that the God that walked with Israel is now the same God that is walking with the church at Corinth. It's the same God that is walking with any church that puts, places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so since we've been given a brand new family as a result of our relationship with Jesus, with Jesus Christ, it should come as no surprise that we also have gained a brand new heritage as well. We have a brand new legacy that we inherit. We have a brand new heritage that we have the privilege of taking part in as a result of being engrafted and adopted into a brand new family. Does that make sense? So whether you are Jewish or non-Jewish, if you are a Christian, ancient Israel is now considered your forefathers, is what Paul is saying. You have been engrafted into that covenant family. And like all forefathers, it is not only important that we know their history, but it is also important that we learn from their history. Those that refuse to learn from history are doomed to do what? Repeat it. So Paul teaches us out of the gate that idolatry is enticing, and he uses history to show us that, that idolatry is incredibly enticing. Now, here's something else I absolutely love in chapter 10, Paul's meticulous use of words in chapter 10. Notice in the very first couple of verses that we just read together, how many times we hear the word all. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized. All ate the same spiritual food. Over and over and over again, we hear this word all. What is Paul saying? Let's, let's take a minute and let's just try to process this. What does he mean by all were under the cloud? Well, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, we hear that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by Night. In other words, Israel experienced the direction and the supernatural leading of the Lord. That's part of our history. Paul says, remember that, that all and that, and, and that all of Israel was led by that pillar. But he also said, all passed through the sea. What does Paul mean when he says all passed through the sea? Well, Exodus chapter 14, it tells us that, verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. In other words, Israel all experienced the same divine and miraculous rescue at the Red Sea. So there was leadership by God as he led them through uh, with a pillar of uh, fire and cloud. There was, there was uh, miracle working power to rescue them and deliver them from the hands of uh, Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians. Paul says also they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is likely pointing to the fact that they were all brought under the headship of Moses through his deliverance of them. It is a mirror, so to speak, to our redemption that we've been given through Christ that is displayed to the world when we get baptized, right? So he says they were baptized into this deliverance 
through Moses, and we were baptized into deliverance, what? Through Christ. Does that make sense? All were baptized. All had the cloud that they follow. All walked the dry land as the Red Sea was parted. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. I want to say drank so bad when I get to that part. All, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. When the Israelites were grumbling and complaining about having no food to eat, God supernaturally caused quail to fall from the sky in the evening and manna to fall from the sky in the morning. When the Israelites were grumbling and complaining about having no water to drink, God commanded Moses to strike the rock, and when he did, water came out of it, giving the Israelites a steady stream of clean drinking water to quench their thirst. They all experienced the same divine provision. So they all received the same divine direction. They all received the same divine rescue. They all received the same divine deliverance, and they all received the same divine provision. In fact, Paul takes it a step further. He says that there was more than just a rock that was present for them to receive physical sustenance. There was the rock. Jesus Christ was literally present with Israel. He was the one that was providing sustaining power for them to go through all of the trials and tribulations that they endured during their time. So they had God's redemption, they had God's provision, they had God's deliverance, they had God's appointment as God's people, they had everything they needed to thrive in their relationships with God, and they were in the fold experiencing all the benefits of being a part of God's people, and yet, despite all of this, we get verse 5. Look there with me. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now here's the meticulous use of words again for Paul. Remember, we read the first four verses, all, 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 all. In other words, all of them had everything they needed. All of them had seen miraculous wonders. And yet, with most of them, God was not pleased. And the proof of his displeasure was in his overthrowing of them in the wilderness. Which leads to another question for us this morning as we look at these lessons in history. Why did God actively oppose Israel after showering, showering them with so much grace? It's an easy answer, even though it's unfortunate. It's because even though they were given endless measures of grace, they still sought their satisfaction and their help in idol gods. They had everything they needed from the one true God, and yet they continued to seek help in idol gods. Verse 6, Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. You see a couple of things here. Number one, you see God's unbelievable faithfulness and goodness towards Israel and in turn, of course, towards us. He provides, he leads, he rescues, he delivers. And yet, you see, another thing you see is Israel's unbelievable willingness to turn away from all of that good mercy and grace in favor of idols. What's interesting is, is, is that Paul brackets this passage that we just read, verses 6 through 11. He brackets it in these words. Now these things took place as examples for us. You know, there's a philosophy of Scripture that we that we, that we subscribe to, that I, I as a preacher subscribe to, um, and, and, it's, and it's a philosophy that, that, that all of Scripture points to Jesus. All of Scripture is about Jesus. All of Scripture points to Jesus. It is often called Christ-centered interpretation, and from that approach to Scripture, we also get Christ-centered preaching, which is the idea that practically every passage has a connection back to Jesus. And while that emphasis on Jesus is really healthy for elevating our appreciation of Jesus and our appreciation of the gospel and its role in every single story in Scripture, there is a tendency in us to overreach in our understanding of how that works. And let me be careful here, all right? What I mean by that when I say overreach is there's a tendency for us to look at Old Testament passages and see some sort of moral failure happen, some sort of act of disobedience happen, and then take from that, from that act of disobedience or moral failure, take a type of conclusion that says, well, we all fail, but Jesus is the one who does not fail. And so, because Jesus is the one that does not fail, don't trust in yourself and in your ability to live a good life, trust in Jesus. And we just kind of move past it. That's not what Paul wants us to do, though. Notice that Paul says, this is an example for you. Don't run too far, don't run too quickly away from this and say, oh, yeah, 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 Jesus solved it all, so there's nothing, there, uh, don't worry about that failure. He says, no, learn from this failure. Because if you don't learn from this failure, you're doomed to repeat these failures. Are you tracking with that? Paul's point in verses 6 through 11 is to make the point that sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, it is simply trying to teach us to conduct, how to conduct ourselves and how not to conduct ourselves. Sometimes that is the point of the test, I mean the text. And these stories are written sometimes for us to say, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Yes, Jesus paid for it all, but I still don't want to do that. Does, that. does that make sense? So, we can learn from these mistakes. And that's what Paul wants us to do. Which is why he says that these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul is challenging us with these historical examples to make sure we understand that drift to idols can be unbelievably enticing to us. 
This is why he exercises the discipline that he does. Remember, we just read chapter 9. And what did he say? He said, I buffet my body. I discipline myself. That I'm, that, I'm, that, I'm not, that I'm not just punching aimlessly in the air. That I'm not just running, you know, just to run aimlessly, but I'm running to win. That means self-control. That means discipline. Why is Paul doing that? So that he does not slip into the lessons that he's teaching us here. Does that make sense? See, God can give us his very self, saints. He can give us his very self as provider, as redeemer, as rescuer, as leader and guider. And yet we still can be tempted to chase cheap copies of him. He exercises discipline, Paul says. I'm exercising discipline. So that I don't get caught up in that kind of idolatry. Because I understand that that kind of idolatry is not to be trifled with. Let's take a moment real quick and look at some of these examples. Verse, uh, uh, verse, verse 7. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You know, this first passage, interesting, uh, interestingly enough, this first pas passage connects uh, the closest to what Paul is confronting at this moment in this letter. We talked about the fact that Paul was confronting food being offered to idols and that there were members in the church that were saying, hey, listen, you told us that all things are clean, whether they're in the temple um, and, they're, and they're taking part in a sacrifice to an idol, that doesn't matter. I mean, that food is clean. I can eat it if I want to. And so here's a passage that connects idolatry and food and drink. This is the closest example that Paul has to what he's experiencing with the Corinthian church right now. And Paul is saying, hey, remember your forefathers in the faith. Remember, remember Israel, who once grew complacent and, and, and loose with God. And they ate and they drank and they played. Now this quote is actually coming from Exodus chapter 22. In Exodus chapter 22, we spent a lot of time, and for those of you all who didn't journey with us, we spent a lot of time walking through uh, the, uh, the, the book of Exodus on last year. And, and, and Exodus 32 is one of those memorable sections. Verse 1, this is what happens in chapter 32 of Exodus. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Remember, Moses is on the mountain engaging with God. God is delivering his words and his message to people. Look up and they say, when is Moses coming back? It doesn't, he's taking a while. So they say, they get, I'm sorry, they gather themselves together to Aaron and they said to him, up, Aaron, get up. Make us some gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw that, and then he built an altar. Then they declared a day of fe a feast. And they rose up early that day, and then they offered burnt offerings, and peace offerings. And then the people sat down to eat and drink 
in play. And that's what Paul is speaking to here. Notice what happens. Notice what happens. This is the lesson from history. All the same people were under the cloud. All the same people had the direct guidance and intervention of God. All the same people passed through the Red Sea on dry land with walls of water on their left and on their right. All the same people. All the same people who received provision from the Lord as he rained manna and quail from the heavens. All the same people. All the same people were sustained by the rock when Moses hit it and water, clean drinking water, poured forth out of the water. I mean, poured forth out of the rock. All the same people. This same group of people, when Moses went up to the mountain to talk with God, after a couple of days and checking the, checking the calendar, whatever that looks like in their day, said, man, Moses ain't been back in a while, so Aaron, get up, man, make us some more gods. All the same people. Paul says, be sure to discipline yourself so that you don't become like that. In other words, don't have such short memories of God's grace in your life that you lose sight of all the large and all of the small ways that the Lord has shown himself mighty and strong in your life. Don't let God get so common to you that it becomes too, too easy to move away from him in difficult times or in times where he might not be speaking as loudly for you. Don't let God get so common that it becomes so easy to move away from him into idolatry. Don't grow so preoccupied with the things of the world that your vision of him is dulled. Not because he's any less glorious, but because you stop beholding his majesty. Let me, let me encourage you to grab a notepad sometimes. Grab a notepad just in a in a moment of relaxation, grab a notepad and just write down all the ways that he has proven himself to you and your family. That he has shown himself faithful, that he, he, he has shown himself mighty and strong. Write down all the places that you could have been today had it not been for the Lord. Isn't it easy to forget that? Before you know it, you start thinking the lunacy that you got here on your own. You know, my childhood church choir used to march in every Sunday morning as a, as a call to worship. I don't know if my white brethren and sister know about this march, but my black brothers and sisters in the house know what I'm talking about. <laughs> used to march in. They feel the church aisles. They had their church robes. When the doors opened, you knew. It was business. Get out of the way, right? Kids in the aisle, hurry up, get out of the way. They coming, you know? They coming. And when they began to walk down the aisle, they would sing this song every single Sunday as a call to worship. Tell me where would I be without the Lord on my side? Tell me where, where 
where would I be? Simple, right? Not theologically heavy for many of us. But you know what it's doing? Every single Sunday, reminding you that the only reason you're here is because of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 34, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Chapter 34, verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6 says, this poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Saints of God, you must discipline yourself to have a posture of thanksgiving. Because the absence of thanksgiving leads to the forgetfulness of what God has done. And the forgetfulness of what God has done easily leads to you looking left and looking right for other idols to bring you satisfaction. Example number two, Paul says in verse eight, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is a history lesson from Numbers chapter 25, where Israel lived in, the, in, in a country um, a shatim and, 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 and began to engage in sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. And that led to them worshiping the Moab gods and sacrificing to these gods and eating idolatrous meals with these gods. And so again, Paul is taking the critical issue that's happening in Corinth, the critical issues that's happening in Corinth, one being idolatry and food, and what do we do with this ideal of eating food before idols, and he's taking the critical issue of sexual immorality, which we talked about several weeks ago, that's happening in Corinth. He's taking both of these critical issues, and he's showing how sometimes they can be interconnected. You see, saints of God, our lust can oftentimes lead to our compromise of idols or towards idols. How quickly does doubt in our God and doubt in his ways as being good for us leak out from us when lust begins to creep into us? How often do we say, well, I don't know. I don't know if all this Christianity is really worth it or just seems like I can just be doing so much better, just having so many, you know, I mean, it just seems so restrictive and so constrained. And so Paul pleads, don't give into idolatry through the doors of sexual immorality. Don't give into idolatry through the doors of sexual lust. You see, for so many, both ancient, I'm sure in Corinth, and, I'm, and certainly today, so many, for so many, doubt in the God of Scripture began not with an intellectual debate, but with a relational bind. 
a relational bind that runs counter to what the Lord has called for, a relational bind that runs counter to certain demands and commands from Scripture, a relational bind that, that cuts, a grant, uh, cuts against the, uh, the Christian view of sexuality and sexual healthiness and sexual wholeness and sexual righteousness and sexual purity. Many, many doubts in God began not with intellectual rigor, but relational constraint. Being drawn to a relationship that scripture speaks against, being unequally yoked, or moving the physical act of sex ahead of the covenantal commitment of marriage. All of these produce roads to idolatry. And those roads, as we see in this example in Numbers chapter 25, can have devastating consequences to our physical and our spiritual lives. Paul said 23,000 died as a result of what? This moving towards idolatry as a result of laying down with the daughters of these idols. It was devastating. That same kind of, that same kind of sexual immorality um, merged with idolatry has devastating impacts, not just in terms of a physical life being able to live, but on, a, on, a, on actual other things. Our spiritual lives are damaged. Our homes are damaged. Our families are damaged. Our connection with our church can even be damaged. Why? Because we're running, running away from the church, not because, any, not because anything has changed in the church, but because the sexual desire is too strong. And so we chase the sexuality even over, the, even over our relationship with our church and our God. Do you understand that? Many roads of doubt start with sexual immorality. Paul says, I discipline myself so that I do not allow that to become an obstruction to my relationship with Jesus and a pathway to idols. Lastly, Paul uses two more examples. The first is in verse 9. Read there with me. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, verse 10, as some of them did and were destroyed by destroy, the destroyer. And I said, I said this is kind of one example because both of these that Paul is referring to in Numbers 21 and in Numbers 14, the testing and the grumbling are both kind of the same thing. What's happened here is Israel has gotten into an unfavorable situation. And in the midst of this unfavorable situation, they started yelling out, we were better off in Egypt. Even when God sent manna and quail, you know where that started? They fed us better than this in Egypt. And so this, this, this discontentment with God is what has led them down this road to testing God and grumbling with God. You know, saints of God, at the heart of most idolatry is what? Is a discontentment. You know, as we think about what's happening in the midst of COVID and in the midst of this season that we're in, you know, we see, uh, you know, we see many people kind of drifting away from the faith. When you start unpacking what's happening in that drift and you start listening to them 
in their YouTube videos, you know, because everybody has to post a YouTube video about it, right? So in their YouTube videos or whatever, and you, when you're watching this, what's happening? What's at the root of it? A discontentment. You know, I'm just, man, it's just, you know, co I mean, you know, some people's like, man, I, I just don't, the church, I'm looking at the church, and they don't seem to be really interested in some of the things that matter. And, and so that's creating what? Discontentment. COVID creates all sorts of struggle and loneliness and isolation, and that creates discontentment. Where are you, God? Can you even be real if you're allowing this to happen to me? You know, you look at Israel, you say, Israel, how stupid can you be? Not, not that stupid, because we ask these kind of questions all the time. Are you tracking with that? Our questions sound a little different than, uh, a little, a little different than, hey, we were better in Egypt. But they're close. You unpack them, they're close. And at that heart of discontentment is where idolatry lies. And at that heart of discontentment is a loss of perspective, saints, regarding the goodness and regarding the mercy of God. You see, on both occasions that Paul is referring to Israel, Israel's desiring to go back to bondage because of their present struggle, they had lost perspective. Israel, again, what did they have? They literally had God raining down food. They had God in a pillar of fire. They had God erecting walls of water so that they can walk on dry land. They had God constantly being present and making provision for them. And in the, and in the instant that struggle appeared, we better off in Egypt, in our bondage. Paul is saying, saints of God, learn from this history and discipline yourself so that you do not lose perspective in the moments of your struggle. The struggle is coming, saints. We must not lose perspective. All right, 35 minutes in, let me wrap this up. Verse 11 says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. The idea here is that some of these Corinthian believers were letting their knowledge of the fact that there was only one God underestimate the ability of the flesh and the ability of the world and the ability of the devil to cloud their judgment and pull them away from that God. They were saying, I can go in the temple and I can hang out and I can eat as much of that food that they got offering as they, uh, they want to offer me. And I can take part in whatever ritual that they got going on. Why? Because I got knowledge and I got freedom and I got rights. And Paul is saying, wait a second, don't let your perceived knowledge and your perceived freedom and your perceived maturity in Christ lead you away from him. Israel's toying with idols led them away from God. Don't let that happen to you. Learn the lessons of history, Paul is saying. And then the last verse, he says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the idea here 
that Paul appears to be working with is that God will never allow anything to come upon the Christian that he doesn't also provide sufficient reason to turn away from. With every temptation that we encounter, we are given a greater reason to pursue God over the temptation. So for the Christian, as temptation befalls us, including the most seductive idols, as it befalls us seeking to pull us away from Christ, Paul is saying the Spirit provides a way of escape by blessing us with a deeper reason, a deeper witness to testify to us that God is better than the sin that we are being tempted by. And this witness is always present with you and always present with me, even as we try to ignore this witness from time to time. It's always there. One, one, one theologian says this. He says, or one preacher rather says this, he says, if we analyze what is really happening in temptation, it will become evident, I believe, that there is only one thing that provides escape from or endurance of temptation. And it's namely this, some kind of evidence that God is preferable to the sin we are being tempted with. Perhaps some promise or threat or command comes to mind from the Bible as it did with Jesus when he was tempted. Or perhaps we recall an experience we have had of God's kindness. Maybe a friend will speak a word of encouragement about God's glory and God's beauty. In any of these ways and many others, evidence comes to us that God is to be desired more than sin. This evidence is the escape available to us. What does that mean? That means temptation is not uh, overridden with nothingness. You don't override temptation by just saying, I'm going to stop thinking about the temptation. You override the temptation by replacing it with something more beautiful and more precious than what you're being tempted by. Does that make sense? This is the value of the word because the word reminds you of what's precious. The word stirs your heart to what you've been promised for your faithfulness. The word stirs your heart to what you've been given in Christ. So when temptation comes, what does Jesus do? Recite the word. Why does he recite the word? Because he's taking the temptation, he's replacing it with something more beautiful and more precious. That's why even your life experiences become uh, become essential and become necessary. That's why you remember your salvation. Because in those moments where the devil is uh, tempting you and pressuring you and, 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 and just literally just showering you with all sorts of craziness and all sorts of chaos in your life, you can say, yes, it's crazy right now. Yes, it's tough right now. But listen, God has been with me. God has been present in my life. There is no way I would be anywhere where I, anywhere close to where I am today without his mercy at work in my life. And you replace the temptation, the, 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 the lure of the idols, you replace that with something more precious. That's why the community of faith is so precious to you. Why? You, you probably came in this morning ready to cuss your husband out. You probably came in this morning ready to just, you know, just shake your children. 
You probably came in this morning with all sorts of baggage from work and, and all sorts of just, ah, oh, man, I just, I, I can't, I, I'm just really just, just so tired of what, what's going on on my job. You probably came in this morning with all sorts of constraints in your body, I mean, or, or illness in your body and, and all sorts of things that has caused you to doubt this week. And then you come in, and what are you reminded of? The goodness and mercy of Jesus Christ. His grace that's been present and evident with you all along. And you join in song with the saints. And you pray prayers to refresh your soul again. That's why this is important, saints. It is there for us to know that God is bigger and better than all the idols that people are trying to pull us towards. But we have to be committed to stepping into that there. You have escaped, but you have to be what? Disciplined to constantly run back to that escape. May we do so with the power of the Spirit, amen? And should we fail and when we fail, may we be given more grace to continue, amen? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we love you.